Well, good morning. We're beginning a brand new series. You're here for the first morning, the first day, and we're going to be talking about those people. And there's a high likelihood that there's a whole bunch of those people right here in this room. And if you're not one of those people, you're going to be given instruction on how to help them. And if you are one of those people, you're going to be given instruction from God's Word on how to get better. We're going to talk about manipulative people. We're going to talk about hypocritical people. We're going to talk about critical people. And today, we're going to talk about overly needy people. Overly needy people. Let me describe an overly needy person for you. Every time you see them, there is monstrous drama in their life. They have always got an issue of great magnitude. They are the saddest people you've ever seen, but they can also be the happiest person you've ever seen. There are giant mood swings. They are always a victim. Starting to think about somebody? What about this? You'll talk to them on the phone, and you'll have a really good conversation, and everything will be just fine in their life. Matter of fact, they'll tell you that. All's good, because you want to check before you hang up. When you hang up the phone, five minutes later, they call back. They leave about an eight-minute message on your voicemail because you know better than to answer. And they go on and on and on with what's wrong. Are we okay again? Are you sure? Because I got to thinking about this after we hung up, and I got to thinking about that, and now I'm feeling really bad, and I don't know if I said something while we were talking before, and I don't know if you really like me, and if you really like me, you haven't been showing it lately because you didn't even take my call now, right? You know anybody like that? Don't point at them right now. Don't point at them. Don't you do that. You see, fact is, all of us are those people at one time or another, aren't we? All of us have some things about us that cause other people to kind of... You know, I can even tell when I walk in the room t- sometimes and people quit talking that they've been kind of saying, well, what about him, you know? Think about his life. All of us can drift over to the dark side from time to time. All of us can be at times in our lives extremely needy. And the fact is, there are people in our lives, when we are in relationship with them, we, we have friendships with them, they either make us better or they drag us down. They ever lift us up or tear us down. Stumbling blocks or stepping stones towards God's kingdom. Some people complete you, Right? Look, I know that some of you had a really late night last night. I can see it in your eyes. But I'm up here preaching, and I slept really well, and I want you to get with me, all right? Some people complete you, right? Right? Good. And some people deplete you. Amen? 
I've got a shirt right here on the front row that says, can I get an amen? And I'm going to put it on in a second if things don't get better. All right? I want you to look to your right at the person next to you. That person's not overly needy. And I want you to say, thank you. Look to your right. Thank you for completing me. Say that to them. Hey, this is my right. Now I want you to look the other way because this pointing didn't work. I want you to look the other way at that person because definitely they're needy, and I want you to say, you are depleting me right now. (laughs) Yeah. Anybody need to move? Some people complete, some people deplete us. And then, when you start to talk about overly needy people, it seems like that somehow or another, they get connected either by friendship or even marriage or another kind of relationship with those other kind of people who are their exact opposites. They're the kind of people who have to fix everything. And it's a very good chance that if you're a fixer, you look for people without even meaning to who have all of these needs in their life so that you can feel good about yourself by fixing them. I'm one of those kind of people, aren't you? In fact, I think that's kind of a trait uh, of males. And here's what I've learned over the years, guys. This is just a lesson aside here. When you go home And your wife says to you, I have had a horrible day. It's been terrible. You don't know everything that's happened. This has been just, oh, it's been awful. And I I just want to tell you about it. And, and, And while she's telling you about it, if you stop in the middle and say, wait just a minute. I know exactly what you need to do. Here's great advice. Start doing this. Here's one, two, and three. She didn't want to hear that. She does not want your advice. She wants your commiseration. Instead of saying, honey, if you wouldn't have done this, and you wouldn't have done that, and if you would have done this, and you would have done that, you wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. You go to the freezer, get out the chocolate ice cream, begin dipping it, and sit down and eat and fake some tears. Got it? No fixing it. That'll help your marriage. People are going to stay married in this church longer now just by that one bit of advice. And what happens when overly needy people get together with a fix-it person is that the fix-it person eventually determines that you can never do enough. I want you to write that down. You can never do enough. I'm sure all of you have stories about how you got involved with someone, some way, in the middle of a catastrophe in their life, and no matter what you did, it didn't help. They just continued to take and take and take, and you gave and you gave and you you gave, and then there was nothing else to do. 
I want to tell you a story about a guy who was my friend, uh, or he, he at least came to our church up in Hillsborough. I'm not going to tell you his name because uh, I don't want you to get into the same mess that I got. This guy had all sorts of problems. I mean, he was constantly sick, and not only was he sick, he had back problems, and sometimes he would walk, you know, kind of like I do after I get up in the mornings, and, and, uh, and if, if he wasn't complaining about how sick he was, he was enlisting somebody to take him to the emergency room so he could see if he could get pain medication. He called me one time and told me how sick he was and asked me if I could take him to the ER. So I went and got him and I took him to our hospital. He said, no, I don't want to go to the hospital in Hillsborough. They won't give me the medicine I want. I had to take him to one an hour away. It was that kind of deal. And I should have known better because I was getting sucked into that black hole over and over and over again. And one night, about 9 o'clock, his wife called me and she said his name and she said, I've had it. He's worried me to death for a week. Can I send him up to talk to you? Now, this is what she said. Can I send him up to talk to you? Remember that. About a half hour later, I I heard her pull up, I heard him get out, and I went to the door and he had his suitcase. (laughs) I could see it was going to be a long talk. (laughs) He couldn't sleep in any of the beds in the house except for my bed because it had the kind of mattress that didn't hurt his back. He couldn't eat certain kinds of food, so I had to go to the grocery that night to get what he needed. The next morning was Sunday. I I got him up for church. He felt too bad, but he felt good enough to come eat a $20 steak on my bill because he had no money for lunch. Three days later, I was asking everyone I knew how to get this guy out of my house. And I I need to stop right here because I need to put a little... disclaimer here. It wasn't Ken. Because many are thinking it was, right? That could happen. Wasn't Ken. He never left when he moved in. So anyway, I got to thinking about it, and 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 I prayed about it, and I said, God, would it be okay to tell a little lie in this situation? The next day, the lady who cleaned my house was coming, and she always came at nine, And I said, you're going to have to get up about 6 in the morning, which was earlier than his 12 noon arisal time. You're going to have to get up about 6 because the cleaning lady comes really early, and she's going to want to work on your room, and you're probably going to help her. He called his wife and went home that night. Now, I'm not condoning lying. But I am saying that it can happen really quickly because in some people's lives, no matter what you do, no matter how far you go, no matter how much you try to feed into their life, speak truth into their life, they don't want to get any better. It's not their desire to get better. It's their desire to just continue to be overly needy. Sometimes you can't do enough. So when you encounter these people, What do you do that's healthy? Because if you don't deal with them and minister to them in a healthy way, it can have an effect on your own life. What do you do to help people 
who are always constantly in need. Now, when you hear the term needy, many, many times you think about folks who are financially distraught, who uh, are uh, in some way due to the economy, due to a loss of job, uh, due to a lack of initiative, whatever it is, they're just constantly uh, in that situation. That's not what I'm talking about today. Any of us can be there and have been there, and it kind of moves from time to time, and there's only one uh, check coming in in the household. It can get there quickly. But when I talk about needy people, I'm talking more about emotionally needy persons or needy people. And there are a couple of ways that I want to differentiate that we deal with people sometimes. And, and the first way is what I'm going to call relief. R-E-L-I-E-F, relief. And uh, that is temporary and immediate assistance. And you know what? I think as a church, well, even, even in a broader sense, as a nation, we're pretty good at that, aren't we? Something big happens, something catastrophic happens, and we are right on it. Uh, a, a family experiences death. Somebody is diagnosed with cancer. We heap attention on them, and rightly so. We, we, we respond to need. There's a tornado somewhere, a natural, or natural disaster. We're sending aid. Some of us are even going to help through disaster relief. A flood occurs. We do anything and everything. I spent two weeks in Falmouth, Kentucky a few years ago helping them dig out. We respond to that. We see something big. Our heart goes out to people. And for a little while, if it doesn't drag on too long, for a little while, we're really, really good about offering relief, about doing our part, about helping people in need. But relief doesn't always get it done, does it? Because sometimes problems last a lot longer than folks are willing to invest time in people's lives. There's another kind of way, and I think the way that actually brings better results, and that's called restoration. Restoration is working with people. Now, I want to stop right here and say this. The word with is big in this sentence because sometimes when we encounter those, kind, those people, overly needy people, we tend to work for them. In other words, do it for them rather than allowing them the opportunity to work alongside you. Working with people to restore them to who God created them to be, to what God cre wanted them to have in their life, restoration. Restoration is much more difficult because the reality is, is that we're better at relief because it doesn't require as much commitment. Now, you name any problem that a person might have that they might get into. Maybe they're an addict. And, and what you'd like to do when you deal with an addict is say, okay, right here, right now, we're going to stop this, we're going to fix this, we're going to put a couple of weeks in, and you're going to be better. Reality is it might take a couple of years or a couple of decades. It might take over and over and over, back steps, forward steps, back step, forward step. And it might take so much more than you could ever imagine. 
Maybe the person is just financially ludicrous. Do you know any financially ludicrous people? They spend money they don't have. They get into messes that they can't get out of. And, and, and instead of you throwing money at their problem, here's $50 to get you through the week. Here's $500 to make a payment for you. Why don't you help them get a job maybe? Or help them learn what a budget is. Restoration. Maybe the person you meet is living a life empty, lack of meaning, lack of purpose. Maybe they're far from God. So maybe what you do for them, instead of uh, setting down and giving them a good talking to, is you go by and pick them up every Sunday morning. You come, you sit with them in church. You pray for them. You encourage them. You make them a part of your life. You disciple them. You evangelize them until they have the strength of God in their life. Now, look at me, guys. Being a restorer is a heavy commitment. Won't come easy, and it won't come without a cost. It, it's going to require you maybe to go further than you want to go, but it's exactly what Jesus did in the life of every person he met. Matter of fact, his disciples continued that tradition. And in our passage in Acts chapter 3, we see this in action. Beginning with verse 1, Peter and John went together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and there was a certain man, lame from birth, who was carried and laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. This guy was a panhandler, really, a beggar, and he asked for alms. Alms is money money from those who entered the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he hollered out and asked them for alms. Fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us, look at us. And so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now, this guy had been lame from birth, remember that. And he had found that the only way for him to have any kind of financial stability at all, or to have any money at all, was he would be begging for money. And so he went to this very, very busy place in the city of Jerusalem, just outside the temple. He was counting on the fact that church people were going to be generous, right? Me too. Did you hear that? It was a little like offering plug there, right? He was counting on the fact that church people were going to be generous. And so he sits there day after day after day after day. Now, he has some relief help. Remember the concept of relief? Because what do we know? There were guys who brought him, who carried him, and sat him in this place. Now, that's a good thing. But it wasn't a good enough thing because nothing was changing in his life. Nothing was changing in his life. And he said to Peter and John, can you give me some money? Can you help me today? And he asked for money because most people think that's their greatest need. Amen? 
Most of us think that's our greatest need. But Peter stopped, and he said, hey, buddy, can you picture this scene? Look at me. You have a lot of conversations with people that don't look at you. Look at me. Focus. Let's think about this. I'm not going to give you any money. I expect when Peter said that, that he almost immediately began to look for somebody else. Look in verse 6. or, or Yeah, verse 6. Silver and gold I don't have, Peter said. But what I do have, I'm going to give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, stand up. Wow. This guy said, stand up. Don't you know I can't walk? I've never walked. I've never taken a step. And you're asking me, Peter, to stand up? I want you to picture that scene. He just wants money. He just wants relief. But Peter and John have come to offer restoration. This guy's sitting there, maybe even lying there, and he's begging. He's begged all of his life. That's all he's ever known, and nothing life-changing has ever happened. Is that your story today? You feel like you live on a treadmill? Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever gets any easier. Nothing ever gets any better. There are folks who help you and love you and care for you, but as soon as they help you, you fall back to where you once were. Maybe you know someone like that if it's not you. But Peter said, it's not about money, man. I'm not going to give you. In fact, I don't have any money. But what I do have, it's yours. And then he threw in that name, Jesus. <laughs> it's a life-changing name, isn't it? He threw in that name, Jesus. In his name, stand up. Now, in the Scripture, it seems like this happened almost instantaneously, doesn't it? This guy's life was changed. Peter said, stand up, and he stood up, and he took off. I don't think it happened that way. I think if you read between the lines... He kind of stretched out this right leg, and he could feel something different. And then his left leg, he could feel a strength that he'd never known before. He could feel a synergy and an energy that he'd never known before. And he kind of lifted that leg up, which he'd never been able to do. And then he kind of tentatively put his heel down. And then the other heel, and he kind of leaned up maybe a little, and he wasn't on the steps. And But I can't get up if I lay down on the floor. And... Uh, So it wasn't like that at all. And he finally, slowly, stood. It works. It works. This is not, it's too much. And then he walked. And then he ran, and then he jumped, and restoration came to be in his life. Now, I don't know about you, but no matter what side of the situation I'm on, if I'm that needy person or if I'm that restorer, those are the kind of moments I want to experience. How about you? 
Those are the kind of times where only God can do something and to see him at work in you or through you is absolutely amazing. I want to be a part of those kind of moments. So I want to offer you some prayers, some things to talk with God about that will help those moments to occur in your life. Here's the first prayer of a restorer. God, help me to give people what they truly need, not just what they want. Help me to give people what they truly need, not just what they want. You see, what I have found out by observing carefully my own life and the lives of others is most of us don't know what we truly need. Most of us want to take a shortcut. Most of us want a quick fix. Most of us want what we believe will make us temporarily happy. It's true in relationships. It's true in finances. It's true in the material world. It's true in the job world. We want what will make us happy momentarily, quickly. Peter and John realized that what this man wanted was not what he needed. And those folks who are truly good at restoring, and those folks who, who, who actually move from being overly needy to content, learn what's really valuable. Now, I don't know what your situation is in life individually here today, but I do know this. Unless you crave the strength and power and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, nothing will ever change. Unless you allow him to penetrate the shell of what you think you want, nothing will ever change. Instead of temporarily fixing something, instead of just relief, wouldn't you like to know the power of restoration? Secondly, God I like this one. God, help me to stay out of your way by not continually rescuing people from their consequences. There is nothing better in life than to be a rescuer, is there? Nothing better than to see somebody who's down and out and you lift them up. You feel really good about yourself. You feel particularly good if they're grateful, if, if they're oohing and on and acting like you're wonderful. You like that feeling? But a lot of us are enablers, aren't we? We enable people to continue certain kinds of behavior because they never have to deal with the consequences. Now, I can speak to this because I'm a parent. And the world's greatest enablers are parents, right? Amen? I want you to think about the prodigal son story. We'll get back to that because here's the right way to do it. Prodigal son went to the far country, ended up wearing the pig pen. Terrible life. Now, don't you expect that the father who had every resource at his hand could have gone just as easily as the son did to the far country. He could have gotten him out of his financial situation. He could have gotten him out of his uh, really bad apartment, right? 
if he had chosen to. But he didn't, did he? When did it happen? When the son came to his senses, right? And the father was ready to help the son when the son was ready to help himself. Now, I wish I had always followed that. I I wish that there were opportunities for me to go back in time and to let my kids fall on their face a little bit more than they did. They did pretty well at that. But just think about all the things in your life as a parent, or if you're not a parent in other people's lives, where you have done everything you could to keep them from dealing with the consequences of their choices. How many times have you had a child come home and say something like this, I got into trouble today at school, and you would not believe how unfair the situation was. Uh, We were walking down the hall, and this kid did this to me, and another kid did this to me, and I retaliated, and they caught me, and they sent me to the principal's office. And you know the principal. He's had it in for me all along. You know he has it in for me, don't you, Dad? Don't you? Remember how how hateful he was when we went to the office the last time? And if it would have been anybody else, they wouldn't have been in trouble. But now I'm in trouble, and just in the middle of that story, you break in and you say, I have so had it with the principal. The way he treats you at school, I'm going to go down there tomorrow and I'm going to straighten him out. Right? You ever said that? How about this? I've wrecked my car, Dad. Get me another one. Tyler hit a deer this very week. No, that was last week. It just seems like it happened over and over and over again. But he didn't hit a deer. This deer hit him, right? I mean, it ran head on into him. What am I going to drive? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Now, let me tell you what I did. I called Farm Bureau. No new car. I drew the line. (laughs) You see, we get into that over and over and over again, don't we? Let me tell you a story. And when you hear this story, forget it. Don't dwell on it. Don't think about it. Don't conjure it up in your mind again. Just listen, take the point, and forget it. When I was eight years old, we lived over on a road that's no longer there because the airport took it, Yow Road. Remember Yow Road? It was the road that ran from 20 into the airport, so it was a very busy road. Uh, The church rented us a place there at that time. And uh, when you're about eight is when you realize that you can declare independence if you want to in a family, you know. You, you, You know you can, and you're not smart enough not to do it. And uh, I was in trouble for something, and there was just too many times that trouble came for me to remember exactly what. Let's just say I was in trouble, and I had broken a rule, and I decided enough was enough. I needed to be emancipated. So I came into my parents where they were, and the, you know, they'd put me to bed and locked me away, and, you know, and just terrible isolation. So I come in, and I say, I've had enough. I'm leaving. I'm going to find nicer people to live with than you people. I'm going to find people that love me. And I'd packed my bag, and I put on some of my better clothes, and I started to walk towards the door when my dad got up and he said, you know, it is time. (laughs) 
it is time for you to make your way in the world. And I'm glad you've reached that conclusion. He said, but before you go, I don't think you need to be taking all this stuff with you. In fact, I'm going to allow you to go out into the world in the same fashion that you came into the world. (laughs) He had me not only lay down my suitcase, he had me remove my clothing. Like I said, wipe this out of your mind. So clothed in my birthday suit, I stepped out onto the front porch and began to make my way, not into the world, but into the woods. (laughs) After a few moments of spiritual contemplation, of prayer, I determined that home looked really good. And you know what I think? I think that our children would grow up a lot wiser and better if parents took those kind of stands instead of saying, do whatever you want, there won't be any consequences. And I think a lot of people would find restoration and strength to not repeat mistakes if you and I learn to restore rather than offer relief. And finally, help me remember that I'm in need to be honest because it's easy to think about other people. Help me remember that I'm in need to And you're always, that's a big always, you're always the answer. You see, some of you have sat here today and you've looked at yourself in that role of fixer. And as long as you can focus on fixing someone else of being a functional savior, you can be their hero, you can be their savior, as long as you can play that role, you forget about the needs of your own heart and life, you forget about the emptiness and the brokenness in your own life. If you can focus on somebody else, it takes the focus off the truth of your life. You forget that. And when we become that functional Savior, many, many times we, we try to do what only God can do in someone's life. And if you're helping, working with, working for, whatever you're doing to offer relief, restoration, whatever it is, if you're trying to do that without somehow pointing them to God, it's a futile effort. It's a futile effort. And if you're trying to get better and recover and move past whatever is wrong in your life and you've forgotten that the answer is always him, you're not going to make it. I like this. If you think that you need to fix everything and everybody, your God's way too small. You see, there comes a time when it'll only work 
if God's involved and you aren't him. Remember that? You're not him. (laughs) Jesus is the Savior, not you. So what do we do from here? We determine that whatever's going on in our lives are bigger than us. Those problems are just bigger than us. We can help. We ought to help. We're called to help. We're called to restore. We're called to invest in people's lives. But those efforts are made to point people to Jesus. And if you're here today dealing with stuff that's bigger than you, why don't you give it to him? Give it to him. Don't move in with me. (laughs) Give it to him. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are God and we're not. So good and so often we're not. So wise and wonderful. A healer, a restorer. We have to admit our problems and acknowledge them today, our sin, our shame. And Father, they'll get better only if and when we turn them over to you. Nothing you can't fix, nothing you can't change. We just have to let you. Trust you enough to let you. We call upon your name. pray for your power right here in this place right now. Amen. Would you stand with me? The altar's open. Beautiful place to come pray. Pray for someone in your life. Desperation. Come share in communion with one another. A holy moment where you can pray together, talk to God, where you can say thank you power that you place in my life for the grace, for the mercy that you've given me, Jesus. Communion, this altar, a decision for Christ right now.